Good morning, church. Today I drove into the parking lot expecting to find the place practically empty. I came into the sanctuary expecting the pews to be rather sparse. And all of you are here today. It's fabulous. It's a blessing to have you here. I've been watching your pictures on Facebook, the backpack, the trips to Europe, the, the family pictures from Disney World. It's been fabulous watching you enjoy your summer months together. And then the Mallory family, they're all gone today. Austin and Chloe are getting married this weekend, and we wish them God's blessing and every happiness. And there's a church camp out going on, too. I believe there's over a hundred of our church family involved in that. So I didn't think very many people would come to church today, and here you are. What a rich time we've had together singing and anticipating the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke, and today we're at Luke chapter 21. If you're using your pew Bible, we're on page 745. Page 745 brings us to Luke chapter 21. There is an urban legend told about a woman who went to the grocery store. She got her cart, she pushed it up and down the aisles. She got all the food she needed. She checked it out and paid for it all. She took it out to her car and put each sack in the back seat of her car. And then she slipped into the front seat. And as soon as she put the key in the ignition and turned on her car, she heard a loud shot and felt something hit her in the back of her head. She reached back to see what was going on and it, it felt like her brains were coming out. Totally in shock, she passed out and when she came to, she was faced with the daunting task of keeping her, her brains tucked in. The folks in the store, meanwhile, saw what was going out, on out in the parking lot, a woman in her car with the windows all rolled up. So they went out and tapped on the window and said, Lady... Are you all right? And she hoarsely whispered, I, I've been shot in the head and my brains are coming out. They called the paramedics. They got her out of the car. They laid out a gurney. They did a quick assessment of what was going on. And there was no blood. There were no brains spilling out of the back of her head. All they found was a great big wad of Pillsbury biscuit dough stacked to the back of her head. Evidently, the heat of the car had caused the canister to explode with the sound of a shotgun and it hit her square in the back of the head with a wad of biscuit dough. <laughs> Again, the story is an urban legend. It didn't happen. But the truth of the story is this. We live in crazy times. And if you're not careful, the whole thing will hit you square in the head and make your brains fall out. That is why the teaching of Jesus here in Luke 21 is so important to us as we move through the last days, as we move through crazy times. He wants us to keep our brains together. He wants to keep our heads screwed on straight. The story takes place here at Herod's temple. Herod was a builder, as you recall. His whole reign was filled with one building Project One ambitious building project after another. I, he built Caesarea Maritima, this upscale port city with a man-made harbor. Place is amazing even to this day. He built Masada. He built the Herodian, his personal residence. But his masterpiece was the temple. It was the architectural wonder of the ancient world. 
It was a symphony in stone, a rock concert in masonry. I mean, the marble blocks were huge. They were 67 and a half feet long. They were seven and a half feet high, and they were nine feet thick. You weigh it all up, and it comes to 30 tons apiece. The place, what, I don't have any idea how they put the thing together. It boggles my mind. We are told that they went into the finest Italian quarries and wrestled those marble blocks from deep in the earth. They used levers and shovels and blasts of water. And once they got it up to the surface, they sized those blocks, they chiseled them into pieces, and then gave them a mere finish. Somehow they got them onto boats and shipped them across the Mediterranean. They hauled it to the construction site. And then with pulleys and levers and, and cranes, they put those blocks into place. It was a monument for the ages. It was solid. It wasn't going anywhere. And the place was impressively beautiful. The courtyards and the palaces and the mezzanines, the gateways and the arches and the gilded doors, the carvings and the tapestries and dazzling lights, the water features, the domes, the pinnacles. Herod absolutely emptied the national treasury on the place, and when the emperor kicked in his donation, it just took the whole place over the top. The whole place was drop-dead gorgeous. And this is the place where we find Jesus and his disciples. They, they can see it all. They can see the courtyard where the people give their offerings. They can see all those fat cats strutting in with their big bags of money and pulling the money out one handful at a time and flinging it into the big brass funnels. And they can hear the clink, clink, clankety, clank as the whole thing circles round and round through the funnel and finally hits the bottom of the box. They can see the little old lady slip in and drop her two cents in the funnel and then quietly slip away. They can see the walls and pillars and colonnades and arches and walkways and steps as they move along. Everything feels secure. And at the same time, something is eating on them deep down inside. There's tension in the air. The whole place is a powder keg of national revolt and Roman imperialism that is ready to explode. And so as they walk along, Jesus simply says, it's all coming down. All the marble walls, the gleaming domes, the dazzling pinnacles, the masterpieces of art, the sacred spaces, it's all coming down. And the disciples are stunned. They can't believe Jesus would say something like that. All through the years, they've heard Jesus say some really amazing things, but this time they think he might be clear off kilter. They feel like saying, Jesus, the finest architects of our time, the engineering geniuses of our day, the finest artists this world has ever seen work together to create this magnificent place, and you say it's all coming down? Jesus, maybe you're forgetting something. These blocks weigh 30 tons apiece, and they're not going anywhere. But deep down inside, they've got a hunch that Jesus is on to something. And so they almost whisper, when is it coming down? And what is the sign that that day is almost here? 
Jesus knows that the reality will soon come. And the whole thing will be so shocking, so stunning, so horrifying, so beyond the scope of human imagination that if he were to lay it all out for them, all the nitty-gritty, it would totally blow them away. And so he describes two events at the same time. The destruction of Jerusalem and the last days of our world. He rolls these two events together knowing that at the right time, they will figure it out. And then Jesus does one more thing. He tells them and he tells us four things to look for along the way to reassure us that everything is on track and that Jesus will come. First of all, he tells us that false messiahs and false prophets will show up. Verse 8, watch out that you are not deceived for many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. In Jesus' day, there were plenty of these guys. Given the political climate and the civil unrest, self-appointed religious and political messiahs and prophets were popping up all the time. They had a tendency to gather their crowds out on the mountainside, out on the desert. I mean, these guys were revolutionaries. They were spellbinding speakers. They were snake oil healers. They did magic tricks. They were practitioners of the cult arts. Historians tell us that the Jewish people were so gullible that when Jerusalem was actually going down, the Romans hired false prophets to march up and down the streets to tell the people to just stay home and wait for God to deliver them. Thus, they were sitting ducks for the slaughter that followed. These days, you don't have to go very far. You don't have to go out to the desert to find false prophets and false messiahs because they're everywhere. They're on the talk shows. They're on the covers of the magazines at the checkout stands. They're in the convention centers. They're in the bookstores. They're on YouTube. They're on Facebook. And let me be frank, sometimes they can even be found in the church peddling some newfangled theology or trying to promote some kind of prosperity gospel or stirring up all kinds of sensationalism or playing control games with the people. And the scariest thing of all is this. Sometimes those false messiahs can be found staring at us from the bathroom mirror. When we get to the place where we have a messiah complex, when we think it's up to us to save the world, when it's up to us to save the church, and most tragic of all, when it's up to us to save ourselves, we're in big trouble. Jesus speaks plainly here. He says, do not get suckered in by such deceptions. Do not hit their like button. Do not read their stuff. Do not subscribe to their podcast. Do not buy tickets to their events. Do not listen to their crazy talk. Do not follow them. Second of all, Jesus tells us that there will be wars and revolutions. Verses 9 and 10. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. 
Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There were wars and there were revolutions in Jesus' day. Political assassinations happened all the time. One country would move in on another to take possession of their wealth, their natural resources, and even their people. Revolutionary rallies were held on the city streets almost every day of the week, and the fake news outlets kept everyone on edge. There were wars in Jesus' day, and there are wars in our day. World wars and cold wars and civil wars and cultural wars and political wars and wars on our streets and even church wars. The Middle East and Africa are riddled with wars. There are kings and presidents and despots who are waging genocide on their own people. The whole refugee crisis is a global challenge. Radical Islam is a global threat. The whole world is keeping a wary eye on North Korea and other rogue nuclear powers. And no one knows what to expect from the United States anymore. The whole world is on edge. The whole world is afraid. And yet Jesus says here, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Wars are going to happen. And things are going to get worse. But Jesus tells us here, do not get rattled by the whole thing. Just keep on keeping on in the faith, knowing that someday soon the Prince of Peace will show up. Third of all, Jesus tells us here that there will be natural disasters. Verse 11, there will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places. And fearful events and great signs from heaven. Verses 25 and 26, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the earth, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Students of Bible prophecy tell us that when we connect the dots between the 1260-year prophecy found in Daniel 7 and Revelation 12 with the natural, natural phenomenon that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and here in Luke 21, a sequence of significant events emerges. The Lisbon earthquake in 1755. The end of papal persecution of God's people in 1773. The dark day when the sun and the moon refused to shine in 1780. The breaking of papal power in 1798. The falling of the stars in 1833. These historical events are important, and these historical events are worth further study for two reasons. Number one, their prophetic timing. And number two, their off-the-charts impact. They are all a part of God's great countdown to eternity. Floods, fires, famines, earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, and other natural disasters continue to remind us of our place in history. 
And while we have always had to deal with these kinds of disasters, you have to admit that in the last 15, 20, 30 years, you've seen them coming at us with greater intensity and greater frequency. You can't miss it. It's one thing on top of another. And the great fear I have in all of this is that it's becoming so commonplace that we are developing compassion fatigue. We are forgetting to take to we are forgetting to take care of hurting people in other places around the country and the world. The other thing that I'm afraid of is that this has all become such a common occurrence that we are losing our ability to see what this has to say about our place in Earth's history and how soon it's all coming down. Old Mother Earth is falling apart. Fourth of all, Jesus tells us that God's people will face persecution. Verses 12 to 19. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will save yourselves. There were plenty of people who did not like Jesus. And it stands to reason that there will be plenty of people who will not like you because you do love Jesus. That's the way it worked out for a first century deacon by the name of Stephen. He became the world's first Christian martyr. That's the way it worked out for God's saints during the Middle Ages who refused to abandon their simple faith in Jesus and put their trust in complicated man-made church institutions instead. And sooner or later, it could very well happen to you or to me. Some of you already know what that's like. Your family just doesn't support your commitment to Jesus Christ. In fact, they're outright hostile to the whole thing. Some of you have people who used to be your friends. They think you've gone off the deep end with your Christian faith. Your boss, he's threatening to fire you because you won't work on Sabbath. And your box is full of hate mail. And when the day comes where law and religion become the Bonnie and Clyde of the last days, you can expect persecution to kick into the highest gear ever. You could face arrest. You could face imprisonment. You could face your day in court or in the governor's office or on the evening news. You could even find yourself facing death. And just thinking about it is enough to scare you speechless. But Jesus is saying here, don't let that happen. Don't worry about it. Don't keep canned speeches in your hip pocket. Don't keep memorized lines circling through your head day after day. Just stay in a daily relationship with Jesus Christ. Trust him with every day of life. And when the moment comes, he'll be right there with you. He will give you the words to say. You will never be alone. You will always be provided for Here in Luke 21, 
Jesus talks about the last days. The last days of Jerusalem and the last days here on planet Earth. And the theological word that we use to describe this kind of thing is eschatology. Big word. You've heard it before. Eschatology. And it seems to me that we as Adventists have a a love-hate relationship with eschatology. Can we just admit it? We have a love-hate relationship with the thing. We love eschatology because it speaks to us of the promise that Jesus is coming soon. It is our greatest hope, our fondest dream to see Jesus come. On the other hand, there are a number of us who find ourselves rather uncomfortable with eschatology. Some of us find the prophecies to be complicated and hard to understand. Some of us have come to the conclusion that the whole thing is quite passe and we've tuned the whole thing out. Some of us are embarrassed by the date setters and the sensationalists who have turned the whole thing into a circus. Some of us have grown tired of preachers and evangelists who use eschatology to scare people into religion. And and so we have to ask the question here, how do we live wisely through the last days? How do we go through this without losing our brains? And I find three things in Jesus' teaching here. Number one, he says, pay attention. He talks about the fig tree in verses 29 to 31, and he says, when you see the leaves beginning to sprout on the fig tree in your backyard, you know summer is almost here. In the same way, when you see these signs, know that the return of Jesus is almost here. In verse 36, he tells us to watch and to pray. And in verses 20 to 24, he tells the Christians in Jerusalem to keep an eye out on what's going on. He tells them that when they see the Roman soldiers surround the city, it's time to get out. And that's exactly what happened. The historians tell us that when when Cestius marched his armies in and surrounded the city, the Christians inside the city watched what was going on. And as these troops surrounded the city, all of a sudden, they went into retreat. They backed off. So the Jews in the city rushed out to attack them, and while they were out there tangling with each other, the Christians got out the back door. Did you know that not one Christian lost their lives in the conflagration that followed there in Jerusalem? Yet the whole place came down. Jesus is telling us here, pay attention. Pay attention to the signs around you. Be smart about the whole thing. Know what's going on. Keep a level eye through it all. Get out of every situation that threatens your spiritual well-being. And find your safety in a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. The second thing that Jesus tells us here is to live confidently. Jesus says here in verse 28 that when you see these things beginning to happen, stand up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. In verses 18 and 19, he assures us that those who stand firm will be saved. And in verse 32, he assures us that every promise of God will see the final generation through. When you know that Jesus will go with you every step of the way, when you know that you are on the winning team, when you know that your salvation is sure, you have nothing to fear. 
You can live with confidence, and I might add, you can live with balance. Last of all, third, live ready. In verse 34, Jesus tells us to be careful not to be distracted by worldliness or immorality or drunkenness. And he tells us not to get sucked into a life of anxiety. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to live for him. We need to live in daily readiness for his return. There's a story told of a wonderful black woman who lived in southern Mississippi. And this woman loved Jesus with all of her heart. Every day was lived with the glad expectation that Jesus will come and he will come soon. Well, one day she took her car and she drove into town to get herself some groceries. And there in the parking lot were three white boys who were up to no good. They knew this woman loved Jesus. They knew that she was living for his return and they decided to have a little fun at her expense. So they followed her into the store and they called out, Hey, Bessie! Bessie, Bessie, Sister Bessie, we hear you, you expecting Jesus to come. She hardly looked at them as she took her cart and pushed it down the aisle, and she said, I sure do. Oh, come on. Do you really think that he's a coming? She paused for a moment, glanced over her shoulder, and said, sure as you were born. At this point, the hecklers cut loose. They ripped into the woman and said, Well, well, Bessie, if you think that Jesus is a coming, maybe you better run home right now and get yourself ready because maybe Jesus is on his way right now. With that, the woman swung her cart into the reverse. She stared her tormentors full in the face and she said, Now you all listen to me. I don't have to get ready because I keeps ready. And that's what we're talking about here. When it all comes down at the end of the world, live for Jesus. Live for the day. And always keeps ready. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the common sense teaching of Luke 21. Thank you for the promises that Jesus will go with us all the way, helping us to live in balance and good sense and ardent faith and expectation that the big day will soon be here. Father, we are Adventists. We want to see Jesus come. And I pray that that hope, that expectancy, will be in our hearts now and always. In Jesus' name.